Okay, it's time for another episode of the Progressive Rugby League Book Club. Welcome. Good to have you back. Now, in our previous episodes of the PRL Book Club, we've been all over the world, really. The Southern California, France, Australia, of course. Uh, one place we haven't been, though, is the, you know, the heartland of the game, the spiritual home of the game, the north of England. And this is where we're going today for PRL Book Club True Professional Edition. And True Professional is the story of... Clive Sullivan, and it's written by James Oddie. It's a fantastic book, and we're really looking forward to speaking about it today. So with me in Lo-Fi PRL Studios is Big Al. G'day, mate. Oh, mate. Thanks for having me again. I'm so excited to be back for another book club episode, and this book, my word, what a story. Yeah. Um, it Everything about this is uh, what we love. Um, it celebrates uh, rugby league the sport itself and um, its political progressiveness, um, yeah. but then of course also uh, the emergence of uh, a black player in the position of captain back at a time when that was unheard of. Yeah, and yeah, really, it, it speaks to me. I loved it. And one of the highlights of doing this pod over the last twelve months has been getting to know the UK better than we previously did. You know, getting to know what makes UK fans tick, uh, working out how the game in the North came to be what it is today, with all the twists and turns along the way. And stories like Clive Sullivan's are the icing on the Madeira, or as Big Al might say, the sweet, juicy nectar rolling down your wrist. You love saying sweet, juicy. It's a true story. I never use the word nectar, though. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. The Clive Sullivan story represents everything good about rugby league, like Big Al was saying. He was a good person who genuinely loved his community, the community he represented. He was resilient. He kept pushing and coming back until he succeeded, and some incredible achievements throughout. He was a symbol of progress, the first black Briton to captain a British national team, showcasing the inclusivity of the game, while other games, union, football, were far from inclusive or representative for a long time following. The great thing about this book, I reckon, Big Al, is that it it gives the story of Clive the due respect such a figure deserves. It obviously centres on the life of Clive, but like all good biographies, it covers so much more terrain. Uh, Clive played the game at the top level for an incredible 20 years. And through the book, we can use Clive's career as a vehicle or a moped to travel around northern England, specifically Hull, of the 60s, 70s and 80s. And there we see a world changing before our eyes, the effect of deindustrialization on, on northern towns in, in England, the effect of TV on rugby league crowds and the coffers, and the changing nature of the game itself. So there's really so much to chew on from a progressive rugby league perspective bigger yeah that's true um and it's it's a great way to like i said at the top of the show celebrate rugby league and, and all its unspoken glory and i think one thing that really rang through whilst reading this book to me was the the parallels that um clive the person has with i guess with rugby league as well in mm. terms of clive was very much um, he never, he wasn't a showman. He didn't, um, he, I guess he didn't really embrace celebrity. He didn't necessarily shun it, but he, he, he just got on with it. There's a bit um, of an outsider too. Yeah, he, he just got on with it. He just did the job. He didn't think much of the fact that, um, you know, he was uh, Britain's first mm. black captain of a national team. Um, he just got on and played and, and, and did the job. And I, I think in many respects, the game itself is like that. So with these other milestones that we always rabbit on about that the game has achieved, both in England and Australia, nobody really blinked an eyelid. Nobody, mm. ever, the game just got on and didn't make a big noise about all the wonderful things that it was doing. Yeah, that, that's the kind of character he was, the sort of guy who just wanted to do the job and, and set a good example for everyone else, and that for you know for Black Britons, but also anyone in his team. He was a, 
a great mentor for many young players as his career went on. And he was born in Cardiff, obviously. He's a uh, black man from Wales. And he became the latest in a long line of black Welshmen to leave behind their country and home sport of rugby union and ply their trade in rugby league. And why? Well, as we said, because they were accepted. They were accepted. And it was a long time before any black person represented Wales in rugby union. And, and there, in rugby league, there were a number of black British players, including but not limited to, you know, Billy Boston, uh, Roy Francis, and now Clive Sullivan, who not only represented Great Britain, but were hugely influential characters in the game of rugby league. So that was a, it's a, it's a really interesting story and, and it's sort of a forgotten story. And I tell you what, from an Australian rugby league perspective, I have to be honest, I hadn't heard of Clive Sullivan until someone mentioned this book to me. I don't know about you, Bigger. I think it's uh, it's pretty symptomatic of the Australian rugby league fans' view of the world, mm-hmm. um, and and that is that <laughs> rugby league exists in Australia and nowhere else. Yeah. Um, and rugby league has a history that started at Birchgrove Oval and nowhere else. Yeah. Um, and that's just it's just one of those things. Like uh, Australian rugby league is really introspective. Mm. Um, it never really it doesn't really seek or or um celebrate history and all that sort of stuff so it doesn't surprise me at all that fellas like you and me had not heard of this at all now clive was a a figure who garnered so much respect in the game and it's it's probably no coincidence that it's because his his sort of endurance and resilience throughout because this was a guy who really for all intents and purposes probably shouldn't have had a career in rugby league he had so many injuries and setbacks through his younger career and life um, you know, injury like he was in a car crash at one stage, and doctors said, "No, nah, forget about it." Um, he's he had calcified thighs. I think had to get rid of his quad muscles or something. Uh, but he just kept going, kept going, and going for years and years and years until the 80s. He started at the beginning of the 60s and was still playing in the the 1980s. And uh, you know, he was a guy who sort of transcended the the game and the town he was from in the end. The, well, the town who adopted him in the end. And in terms of the type of player he was as well, he, he was sort of representative of a really modern breed of winger that we see quite often these days. You know, the winger who takes the ball from dummy half and gets involved and is not is not just waiting on the edge of the field. He, he wanted to get involved. And that's really a modern day uh, version of a winger. Back then, I think wingers were sort of told, you know, stick on your wing, stick to your knitting. But Clive wasn't like that at all. And that's probably why he scored so many tries. I think he was the first player to score 100 tries uh, for Hull FC and Hull KR. So, yeah, I mean, you got to talk about the attributes he had where he, he was he had blinding speed as a youngster and that's and that's why he was brought over to rugby league. Um, the scouts got him because back in that day, it was actually quite, it was quite scandalous uh, for a Welshman to switch over to rugby league. Well, I mean, yeah, Wales was and still is a hotbed of rugby union mm. um, and as was part of the course back then, any defectors from Union were basically had their portraits stripped from the clubhouse and, yeah. were, and were shunned by their whole community. So um, it didn't really come as a, as a massive shock that, that that's what he was up against in, as part of his defection. Mm. Um, there was one really, like, as throughout, peppered throughout the book, there's lots of classic, like, only in rugby league stories. Um, and to sort of bring the mood up a little bit, um, I wanted to focus on one that I've, I've got highlighted on my Kindle. Uh, it's just a, a very short anecdote of when um, when Sullivan was trialling. Um, he, was, he was a trial player. Mm. Um, and so he's still officially a registered rugby union player, so they couldn't name him in the squad. But he played under the... Um, appearing under the name of A.N. Other. 
Um, or Mr. X in another, in another newspaper because he couldn't be named. I thought that was very clever. Well, that's what, <laughs> that's what it was like back then. You get the sense through the book and James Oddie's uh, writing that it was really controversial and, uh, you know, undoubtedly it, for a lot of Welsh players it was kind of tearing their heart apart because they knew that once they went to rugby league they were going to be shunned by their, their communities back home. So it was like you go to rugby league and you don't, you don't come back. But the thing about Clive, as his career was starting, he was a, he became a paratrooper. He qualified in the UK Army. He became a paratrooper. That's why he became so fit and was so resilient, I think, and maybe caused a few injuries along the way. But he was a one tough cookie, Clive. Yeah, I, I get the uh, – reading the book, like, all, all one thing that really kept um, – one thought that kept coming to my mind was, like, this guy doesn't stop. Mm. So he's he, – after all the injuries that he overcome when he was very young – before yeah. he even became a professional player. He's a bloody paratrooper. He's he's one of those guys that prides himself on his strength and his fitness and like his on field performances and he's always he's always like being the better person, mm. I suppose. Like what a guy. Yeah, and, <laughs> and not only that, off the field, he was ne- never saying no to any sort of suggestions to come down and pick the the number out of the, the meat raffle and, yeah. and helping and, out. Yeah, the that's actually yeah, that's a really interesting point um, that was raised in the book is that back then um, rugby league players were like celebrities, yeah. but they didn't have the means to not they still had to work like everybody else did. So yeah. they had all the demands on their time, like they were public property without being without um, being rewarded financially. So um, I think there's a story of him going trying to go shopping with his daughter at the supermarket. Yeah. Um, and she like she it takes like three hours. People kept coming up, asking for his signature and stuff like that. And kept giving his time. Yeah. And he, he was just so giving with his time. Never once um, complained about it, and knew he was there for the community. He just loved the game so much. He, he kept playing all the way. I think until the age of 42. And and according to James, he was the oldest player in the first division of all time. Can you imagine 42? In like playing professional rugby league in the freezing north of England in what the seventies with aching bones. Like how yeah. how did he survive that long? I can't again throughout the whole book. I can't. All I kept thinking was like this sounds so hard. <laughs> Everything sounds tough. It's cold. You got to have a job in the at the docks or on the mines, getting up at seven thirty in the morning. Yeah. Then you got to come home and go to training. You're one day off on the weekend. You don't get because you got to go and play in freezing mud somewhere <laughs> and have your you know your your legs snapped and your medical procedure on the field with no anaesthetic because it's sixties mm. in the north of England. Like it just sounded so tough. Yeah. He like you know Mr. Perpetual Motion. Well, his per- persistence paid off in the end because. For most of his career, we're going to talk about the, the famous World Cup uh, in 1972 shortly, but throughout most of his club career, there wasn't much success for him uh, at Hull FC, his first club. Uh, I think they might have won one of the thousand uh, knockout trophies that were around back then. But um, I like the um, one of those trophies are called like the Floodlit Trophy. Floodlit <laughs> like, tro- that's awesome. Is that what Games Under Lights were just. <laughs> yeah, but he, eventually he won the Challenge Cup at 37, so. That's a really amazing part of his uh, career because it was getting towards the end. And at the Challenge Cup uh, at Wembley, obviously a storied stadium, he refused to go with his teammates to visit Wembley uh, on an annual jaunt because he wanted to go and play. He didn't want to sort of sit there and imagine <laughs> what could have been. So he, he didn't join his friends. But eventually, at the age of 37, persistence paid off because he was at Hull FC for such a long time, and then he, he left eventually and went to Hull KR, Crosstown Rivals. Mm. And this is a pretty, well, you'd think it would be quite controversial, but I think the nature of Clyde uh, was such that 
um, people from the city of Hull loved him so much that they were just like, oh, good on you. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> Thanks for your well service. Done, good luck at KR, which is quite uh, quite incredible, really. And, yeah, so at the age of 37, he finally lifts uh, the Challenge Cup trophy. And this was a final, an incredible final. I don't know if you remember this part of the book, but this was not only he's playing for his new club, but he was playing for his new club against his old club in a Hull Derby derby. And it was incredible scenes. There was like 95,000 people at Wembley, one of the great rugby league occasions where pretty much half the, the city of Hull probably travelled down to London. Can you imagine um, that sort of scene? And James brings that to life beautifully. That's a real highlight of the book, I thought. And then two years later, he's back. He somehow gets back to uh, Hull FC. He wins the Challenge Cup with Hull KR. He's back at Hull, Hull FC and they make a Challenge Cup final. I think uh, it's a replay in the end because the, the first game is tied. He's not going to play because he's too old, but he's sort of always been saying, oh, if you need me, just give me a call. And you know what? They needed him. <laughs> <laughs> Who do they call? <laughs> Clyde. Oh, Clyde. He gets off the couch and he wins another, another replay or another Challenge Cup at the age of 39. So, geez, his persistence, resilience, patience really paid off in the end. Um, so you just got to got to give it to him. And I, I must say... Ladies and gentlemen, I forgot to mention at the top of the show that we'll be speaking to the author, James Oddie, um, after this segment. So stay tuned for that. He's got some really interesting thoughts about the writing process and, and Clive in general. So after all of his Challenge Cup wing, like the, the Challenge Cup's brought up many times throughout the book. And what, um, what I found really interesting was the number of uh, clubs and the various different structures that the league had throughout Clive's years so I think at one point there was 30 clubs in one division and then they decided to split it they'd mess around with, with promotion and relegation but um, yeah, just, one year in the early 70s they relegated 14 teams <laughs> yeah. uh, so it just paints a really interesting picture I think a, a forgotten picture of what, what uh, rugby league must have been like back in those days when you had all of these different clubs all quite powerful and all, mm. and all quite strong um, playing in what was like a healthy but also quite precarious league mm. Mm. And, and the thing is about this book, it's it's so much uh, more than just Clive's story. It's obviously a huge part of it, essential to it. But it's really it also obviously gives a, a real insight into the city of Hull in particular. And it's really interesting that James gives us a, an insight into the identity of the northern towns and how they were linked to certain industries. Is something that you know I knew there was the industrial north, but I didn't know the specific towns uh, were just concentrated on one specific industry and I know St Helens and Castleford they were pit villages you had um, Leeds and Bradford they were into they were mill towns and into textiles Dewsbury a wool town you well, would be surprised that uh, makes perfect sense I'm embarrassed to say I, I didn't realize that Warrington were called the wire because of the industry that they represented which was the steel industry so what? I'm embarrassed thought, to say that I just thought that was a cool nickname for like Warrington like, oh yeah there you go Warrington the wire oh <laughs> shame on me again uh, once again our English uh, listeners are rolling their eyes <laughs> so hard right now so apologies about that and of course Hull was a fishing and trawling town and this was really a really extremely dangerous industry and it led to Plenty of superstition. It was so dangerous. Deadliest catch before deadliest catch was cool. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's estimated 6,000 men died um, in a century in that industry. There's like like one person a week dying. Yeah, so that's, go, that's outrageous. And they, there was plenty of superstition as well. So they would, for instance, avoid hauling from the, the port or left side of a boat. Uh, they didn't weren't allowed to wash any clothes on a sailing day. Oh. So all this sort of stuff. Because when you think about it, these men were going off into the unknown and may not 
come back. Uh, they were gone for a long, you know, days at a time. And it was that sort of living on the edge lifestyle that, that sort of permeated into the town's psyche and by extension, um, how it supported its rugby league as well. Because there's, there's plenty of um, talk as well that, that Jane gives us what it was like playing at the boulevard as well in, in Clive's early career where Hull FC had their home ground and, you know, the crowd were just like, they had, you know, pocket full of money. They survived, you know, their latest shift on a fishing trawler yeah. and they had money in their pocket. And like 36 hours to spend it. <laughs> That's right. And they wanted to have fun yeah. and really they were happy to just like give it their all in the stand, the, the three-penny stand. That's a really great part of the book as well. I, I find, I know I've harped on about this, but just the toughness it must have taken this is coming from big al pampered like you know <laughs> inner city office worker who lives in australia lives in sydney where the oh if, if it gets below 18 degrees we call that a, we call that a cold day yeah. imagine waking up at like the crack of dawn to go trawler fishing in hull freezing <laughs> bloody cold how could you like that that just sounds so and then and then going and playing the toughest sport on earth yeah that's right it, it just sounds it just sounds so testing there's also an anecdote in the book where i think one of clive's teams i can't remember if it's krfc they have to play uh featherstone and featherstone was a, a mining town and uh the <laughs> miners sort of they were down the the shaft sort of on a saturday morning and they they came out and they came out to play and they still had all this yeah, shit all over them but, yeah well, I couldn't scratch this, mate. Can you imagine? These days, we're worried when we get a bad haircut. <laughs> so also part of the book is how James not only talks about Clive, but also the influential characters, the huge characters uh, that sort of paved the way and played a, a role in the career of Clive. And there's one in particular that I'll sort of bring up, and that's uh, Roy Francis. You know, he was a pioneer of his own, the first black British professional sports coach. Uh, he was a, a pioneering and visionary coach, and he was uh, also a black Welshman, and, and he took Clive under his wing uh, early in Clive's career. So that's an interesting story, the Roy Francis story, uh, who I think made his name generally in Leeds, his most well-known in Leeds. He was very influential in Hull as well, and, and he played a he, – he was a, a visionary coach, also a paratrooper, just like Clive. So he sort of brought to the fore the fitness side of things and, and being, you know, playing, you know, quote-unquote total rugby – and uh, <laughs> so that's another character that's really interesting to read about. So that's a bit about the town. And we've spoken about Clive, the player, and we've spoken about uh, his sort of story and how he got to where he was. But it's time to really speak about um, the World Cup, the, you know, mm. the 1972 World Cup, where he really, what he's most famous for. And this is a, a really interesting story in itself. And uh, Clive became captain, like we said, the first black Briton to captain a British sporting team uh, in the early 70s. And and this came after, you know, the most violent period of rugby league, international rugby league, in 1970, which we spoke about uh, last book club in their finest hour. Um, that final in Leeds, which was just like violence, yeah, just was gratuitous. Violence on the field. That's right. So rugby league was trying to recover from that a bit, I suppose. And and English rugby league, uh, you know, they weren't doing so well. I mean, they'd, they'd lost that final. They were severe underdogs in this World Cup. Uh, they lost a, a series to New Zealand in 1971. So they were under the pump and no one was expecting them to win at all. So Clive is captain, which is fabulous, and they go to France uh, for the World Cup in 1972. Now, what happens then is, is also very interesting. The, the team seems to have some off-field issues. 
and uh, the hierarchy of the RFL, they want to punish. And this was uh, Clive, <laughs> he didn't agree. And he negotiated, in true leadership style, he negotiated an agreement that the players wouldn't be punished, they would you know, continue to play. But they, the agreement was, I think, in the end, that if they didn't win the World Cup, <laughs> that they would have to pay uh, damages. I think they... They, 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 they would um, have sanctions. I think that's yeah, what they right. yeah, they yeah. received sanctions upon so, return home. So not if only... If you don't come back winners, <laughs> you better not come back at all. So he was a great negotiator. He not only negotiated with and the a motivator price, as well. And a motivator, exactly right. So if you don't win this World Cup, then you, it'll come out of your pocket as well. So then um, came the final. They made the final. I think after beating Australia in a pool game, um, and they, there they were in France, in Lyon, in 1972, and there was a, I think, a, a final attendance, a final attendance of 4,000. So it's like one of those crowds where you can hear individual conversations. Like <laughs> that's when you know it's a pretty small crowd. Yeah. And um, it was fantastic to watch the replay of that game because it actually, Great Britain. This is the last time they won a World Cup, but they actually didn't win that. That final, it was a 10-all draw, mm. played uh, great intensity and, and great uh, fervour. And Britain won that World Cup because um, they had won the pool match and finished on, on top yeah. in the in the lead-up to that. And, of course, the great story here is Clive Sullivan, first black British player to captain a, a British national team, he scores an incredible length of the field try, a pivotal try that helps uh, Great Britain's uh, secure that victory. So it was really interesting to watch the highlights. It was also a, a great, a famous try, the try that never was, the greatest try that was never scored, where Graham Langlands uh, dived full length to try catch a bomb, and he was called offside, but then the replay showed he was clearly onside. So, uh, plenty you know, of them across history, come exactly. on. Tell it walking. But um, that, that was a great story, and, and to see Clive's uh, face, his smile, he's holding up that trophy. James paints that picture really well. But it's not only the 1972 World Cup that's interesting. It's also the 1975 World Cup. So this is a World Cup, like we said in our previous book club. World Cups were all, all over the shop. They were like, sometimes they were two weeks, sometimes they went for three years. Anyway, from 1972 to 1975, they decided to split up Great Britain and they decided to play home and away competition over a period of a year, I think. And so, but for some reason, which James mentions is still unknown, despite the fact they were meant to play home and away, England played Wales in Brisbane. Well, that makes perfect sense because, you know, there's a massive Welsh community in Brisbane in the <laughs> yeah, 70s. That's right. So there in uh, 1975, Clive is now on the other side of the fence. He obviously captained Great Britain in 1972 to the victory. Now he's playing for Wales against England. And this was like a, a sort of points competition. So England was sort of on track to win the World Cup and head the table and, and win their you know first World Cup as England. But... Believe it or not, Wales beat England and stopped England from winning a World Cup. So isn't that interesting? So, so this would be like if um, if Cam Smith could like qualify for a Tier Two nation. Yeah, and then um, the next World Cup he yeah. stops Australia from winning. So that's quite hilarious. He, he captained Great Britain and then stopped. He, he scored a pivotal try, I think, again in in this match. He stopped uh, his English teammates from winning uh, the second World Cup in yeah. a row. So, uh, Clive, he was very influential throughout all the big moments throughout his whole career. So, obviously, yeah, so Clive, he's done a lot of touring, like World Cups, like he played that game with four Wales in Brisbane. (laughs) Um, So, there was a couple of funny um, line here from Nick Shoebottom about just the kind of roommate that that he was um, Mm. and how, again, is a testament to his character 
he was just a great bloke to share a room with. So mm-hmm. I'll do this in a um, in a mixed shoe bottom accent. I'm just assuming <laughs> what, what, what he sounds like. Clive was brilliant to room with. That was because he'd been a paratrooper and he could get up early and make your toes and fresh your trousers. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> not very much. Thank you. Uh, once again, I think our uh, British listeners are probably rolling their eyes and just oh, pressing like stop and never, never to listen again. But uh, apologies for that, guys. Um, another anecdote I want to mention. He, he also uh, was a subject of uh, This Is Your Life. Oh, that would be pretty cool. TV show. So, uh, I like that. There's a bit of text about Clive's family throughout um, the book, but I think that they seem like a very supportive family and one of the great rugby league families. But I think they uh, they let the rugby league world down because there, there's no there's no sign of uh, this this tape. You know, like they could have you know taped. Oh right. So they didn't. You reckon they didn't tape it off TV? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. There's no dusty VHS in Grandma's living room. Oh well, no one can find this. Uh, Haven't the BBC got a copy? That nah, apparently not. James looked everywhere, so... Wow. Imagine that. All right, well, let's put the call out. Let's put the call Come out. Come on, PRL. This is your life. We can do this. Circa 1972, Clive Sullivan edition. We want to see Check that episode. Check your grandma's attic. You yeah. know she's got a copy somewhere. That's right. So, I mean, another thing about Clive, he took rugby league very seriously throughout uh, his 20 years in the game, and he was a very nervous player too, because every before every game he vomited. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I, I found that really surprising. I vomited like twice in my life, uh, and <laughs> I, it was a traumatic experience each time, and I tried my best to avoid it. He's vomiting before every single game. He played rugby league for 20 years. Yeah, that, that's amazing to know that, I mean, would you think it was just a mixture of, uh, like, I don't know, Anxiety, not anxiety, sorry, excitement, and maybe some anxiety and stress, mm. and just the idea, the not the, the idea of the unknown. Yeah, I mean the, I, the fact that it happened every day, every game. Yeah, I mean before, like uh, I don't know, a big meeting at work or something, uh, I might do a nervous poo. That's probably like, the the closest I can get to to retching uh, before before mm. a big game. So. I suppose it's it's excretion. Yeah, it's one way or another. Okay, well, that's all we really have time for today. It's been fabulous going through the life and times of Clive Sullivan. Uh, thanks for your time. And I tell you what, there's plenty of other book clubs you can listen to if you haven't listened to the other ones. We've got Know How Much Required, uh, Touchstones by Steve Mascord. We've got Their Finest Hour by Andrew Marmot. And, of course, The Forbidden Game by Mike Rylance. But stay tuned because we're about to speak to the author, James Oddie, and he speaks about, uh, you know, writing the book and, you know, the story of Clive and, and the place of rugby league in the north of England now and in the past. So It's okay, so a really interesting insight uh, for those that live in the Sydney myopia. Exactly. So stay tuned for that. Here it is. And it's time to speak to the author of true professional James Oddie. He's on the line. Come in, James. Uh, good morning, and um, good evening to you guys. I just speak to you. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. Um, yeah, things are pretty good at the minute, so... Um, and, uh, and where are we speaking to you from today? Um, I'm, I'm in Leeds, um, at home in Leeds, in uh, West Yorkshire, north of England. So, yeah, that's, that's where I am today. Um, oh, right, so um, why don't you tell us a bit about your rugby league story then? Uh, yeah, I suppose, you know, when I said
I loved it as a game, but as I got grown, I started to take on board a little bit of the social aspect of it and the, the history of it. Mm. That interested me, and um, you know, I was quite passionate, especially when I was younger, about how rugby league was uh, maybe had some broader messages about society and, and politics as well. So that yeah. was kind of my um, why, why I kind of wanted to write about, and then I was lucky enough to, to get a few opportunities to, to write about rugby league. And I write about a lot of different sports now, but rugby league is what I'm started yeah. writing about sports. So I always owe it a great, you know. Yeah, fantastic. And and like we said earlier in the show, it's a brilliant book. So congratulations on True Professional. Uh, it's a it's great. Yeah, it's great to see the story of Clive Sullivan come to life. Now, Clive passed away at, well over thirty years ago, I think. Now, why do you think it took so long for someone to tell his story in full, noting that someone wrote a book? Uh, in the 70s, midway through his career? Uh, I'm not sure. I think that, um, you know, unfortunately, publishing in, in the UK, sports publishing, doesn't always look that kind of rugby league. Um, I think that's changing a little bit, but, you know, I was lucky that the publisher's pitch, um, they wouldn't, and, you know, you wonder in the past if people have, have come up against opposition in terms of, of publishers, uh, mainstream publishers taking a risk on rugby league. Um, mm-hmm. Probably the fact that there's little to no money writing about rugby league, um, the book farm, you know, but they want to do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, until relatively recently, it was hard to get a big collection of rugby league uh, records. You know, in Huddersfield, which isn't too far, obviously, it's birthplace of rugby league. Yeah. Not too far from Leeds, and um, they have, at the university there, they have the rugby league heritage centre, which is relatively new. They've kind of collected. Sorry, did you say a university of rugby league? Uh, well, it's, it's the University of Huddersfield, but they, they, um, they have like a heritage area, and it has a whole rugby league section, and it's kind of like. They'll have shirts, you know, old shirts, boots, balls, but they also have massive record books, you know, rugby, you know, wow. everything you can think of rugby league related. They, they Definitely sounds like my kind of place. So we've been doing these book clubs um, over the Australian summer months, and all the authors we've spoken to um, have really painted a picture of how writing these types of books, it's a, definitely a, a passion project. It takes a lot of effort. You've got to, you, you're scraping together information from resources that are either poorly kept or not kept together in the one spot. Um, after all this work, uh, what's the reaction been to the book? Uh, it was really relatively, well, it wasn't relatively, it was, it was almost universally positive, which was nice. Um, there was a Guardian Sports Book of the Year in 2017 mm. when it came out, which was, which was amazing, really. You know, that's, that's brilliant. And, you know, it's to the Guardian, which is a national newspaper, it was the, one of the top 10 sports books of that year, mm. um, along with another rugby league book, actually, on the docks by Tony. And, um, okay. That was a really, um, that was really amazing, really. Yeah. Fabulous. I'm not familiar with, but, and it's definitely, 
I feel like there's a bit of a change. Rugby league in the UK is not exactly flourishing at the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk about that later, but I think maybe the heritage of rugby league is flourishing a little bit, which is a strange dichotomy. Um, mm. But um, I feel like people are actually kind of looking back at rugby league now and thinking, actually, this is an this amazing star, this amazing character, isn't it? And, and people are revisiting that a little bit. Yeah. I want to take credit for that myself. I think maybe I was just part of it. Yeah. Well, James, there's, there's so many uh, so many good stories to tell. And, and the book, this book obviously focuses on the city of Hull where Clive played his trade. And you paint a, a really vivid picture of a working class city in transition. So I was curious, what does a, a working class city look like today? You know, would Hull and other rugby league towns still be considered working class? James, um, the towns in the book seem quite different to each other during that period, during Clive's career span. Um, you know, it, I suppose they were based on the dominant industry, I suppose, and Hull being a, a trawling fishing town. Do, do northern towns remain as distinctive from each other as they seemed then, or are they sort of a bit more, I don't know, similar, homogenous? As the North goes through a transition, I suppose, uh, as does the game, looking at Clive's career, we're going across the 60s, 70s and 80s, pretty interesting times uh, for rugby league. How do you compare the popularity of the sport today um, back to those those years when Clive was playing? Mm. So it was interesting when I was in the 
the heritage centre looking at the advertisements and the, the bold, how bold the RSL got in terms of marketing and advertisement and its confidence as well. Yeah. Um, rugby league t shirts. Yeah, I mean, you could get rugby league jumpers. You know, you could just get, get a jumper with rugby league on it. <laughs> I find hard to believe that. I think rugby league had the confidence and the vibrancy in the 80s, which is unfortunately, I think, in the UK, it's, it's lacking a little bit now. I think. Uh, I think rugby league in the UK, England is really struggling at the moment. Mm. I'm not trying to be a negative about that. That's, no, that's, the, that's the vibe we get, uh, you know, like we've said before, we're pretty new to the game in the UK. That's the vibe we get from uh, people we speak to, and that it's, uh, you know, not, it's trying to get off the ground, but it's struggling a bit. Yeah, I think it's, it's that lack of confidence. I think there's a real um, self-consciousness in the game. Oh, I'm from the RFLs, maybe, you know, I don't, I don't want to speak ill of them, you know, I don't think they get slated, I think they do try and do the best job they can, but, like I said, when I look back over the game, I saw the 80s, and rugby league was, in my, you know, the crowds were massive, you know, the whole game, 20 odd thousand, you know, mm. and there was a real confidence, I thought, that rugby league, as we went into late in the 80s, you know, the marketing was fighting in it, you know, they wanted to sell the game, and they felt like they had a good product to sell, and I think that, you know, in the big 90s, So you mentioned um, potentially getting left behind. So when it comes to sports, one key aspect of, of making sure you're relevant in the future is to try and secure a, a new audience. You've got a pretty unique insight into what the kids are into these days by virtue of you being a school teacher. Um, do, do young people, especially young people in Leeds, um, have interest in rugby league? I mean, are the Rhinos popular um, or is it all just soccer or heaven forbid Fortnite? <laughs> See any, uh, do you see any Rhinos jerseys on a school Mufti day or, or is it all football jerseys? Yeah. I 
interact with daily really seem to take much interest in them, you know. Yeah, oh, that's <laughs> interesting. Manchester United and um, Manchester City and Clout, which is very sad, really. I mean, they were aware of rugby league, but they had no real interest in mm. Yeah, but it's not yeah, cool. Really, yeah. yeah, well, look. Yeah. Now, James, I imagine writing a book uh, is a bit of a, an emotional roller coaster. You know, are you going to finish it on time? How do you know when you've got enough material to put a book out? Can you give us an insight into the, the writing process and, you know, tell us at what point you were comfortable that it was going to work out? <laughs> I think I was comfortable um, a few months after it came out. Okay. <laughs> um, it's, hard, it's hard to feel... It was hard to feel comfortable in this area. I felt a lot of pressure, you know, from clients like this really, and that I wanted to do them justice. Um, and I, I wasn't, wasn't until I got the reactions of, of the public and, and fans and whatnot that I felt that comfortable with it. But I don't know, I think that, well, I think there's always stages where you feel comfortable on the way and you have a moment of panic. You know, I remember one day when I'd done, you know, I've been writing all day and I, I just thought, you know, what, this is, this is good, you know, <laughs> this is what I'm putting out there, it's good and it, it's going to be a success. I remember that quite vividly. That's a that's a, a good segue into our next question. So um, you mentioned at the top that you started out writing about rugby league. You've obviously you also mentioned you started writing about other sports. Um, can you give yeah. us some insight into um, the life of a rugby league journalist in the UK? Yeah, I think the, the volume of full-time rugby league journalists is um, quite small. You know, I think um, you know, unless you get uh, taken on by one of the big newspapers, national newspapers, to write about it or you'll do it as more than a freelance or part-time basis. So, you know, I, I wrote boxing, so I work with sporting love, so boxing is something I also write about. And yeah. I probably write about boxing more than rugby league now. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Not, some of it is financial, but not entirely. I mean, you know, if you want to talk about rugby league, how it markets itself, well, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you just, if you looked at boxing and rugby league, you said probably rugby league is a bit of sport that takes off. Well, you know, boxing in the UK now is Obviously, is about Clive Sullivan, who is the first Black Briton to captain a sporting team in yeah. in Britain, uh, which is an amazing yeah. achievement. But also, your book, you know, talks about talks a bit about um, you know people who paved the way for someone like Clive. You know, Roy Francis, Billy Boston. I'm wondering if you can just yeah. tell our listeners, especially uh, in Australia, a bit about uh, Roy Francis, for example, because he was quite a pioneer in his own right. He was a Black Welshman himself, wasn't he? Leeds and Roy Francis is a real um, kind of folk hero in Leeds because he 
he was he was the coach. You know, um, it, you know when you talk about revolutionary figures in the game, as, as a as a thinker and a, a, a rugby league um, coach and manager, he was a, he was a pioneer and he, he pioneered at Leeds really. You know, he was successful at other clubs, but Leeds was where he really made his name. And, mm-hmm. You know, uh, you say Roy Fountain's around Leeds and you still get a lot of um, you know people biting up and, and being aware of him. When you, when you think about James, if you do write that uh, book about Roy Francis, I hope you can come back on our PRL book club. So uh, we hope you can do that. And and we really want to say, once again, congratulations on the book, True Professional. It really has been so illuminating for us, especially here in Australia, uh, not having really heard, to be honest, of Clive Sullivan before uh, being told of this book. So we want to say congratulations. Thanks so much for your time. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, well, I, uh, you know, a uh, real honour and a privilege. And, um, you know, Australia's the, feels like they're the epicentre of the game at the moment. So it's nice to know that Clive's making some waves out there. So. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks again, James, and take care. Thank you. Thanks, James. Thank you. And that was James Oddy. He was, uh, yeah, he was really open and honest with his thoughts on the game in England and the, how it's struggling and, yeah. uh, you know, fair play. And, and the, the tough life of being a rugby league journalist yeah, in, in the UK. I, I think it would be, I mean, he, he said it, it it's, um, it's a niche sport um, and the full-time opportunities are forever dwindling. Yeah. Um, it's definitely something you do for love. Yeah. So well done, James. And I tell you what, if he does write that book on Roy Francis... You're back on the, the back on PRL the book, club. book Club in a few years' time. So very exciting. Okay, well, that's that's about all we have time for for PRL Book Club uh, for another episode, and that's the end of our mini off-season. So we hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, let us know your thoughts. And in the meantime, we'll see you in a couple of weeks uh, when the NRL season kicks off and we're going to be talking NRL Super League Championship, everything going on in the world of International Rugby League. So... Uh, It's been a pleasure as always, and on behalf of Big Al and John O'Duncan, it's see ya. See ya in the Rugby League Book Club, we trust.